Welcome to Life on Mars, a podcast about technology, entrepreneurship, and innovation. You will listen to stories of the best founders, inventors, experts, and celebrities from all around the galaxy. What up, everyone? Alex from Mars Base here. Welcome to another episode of Life on Mars. Tonight, today, we'll be talking to Chiara Massidoni and Kevin Winery from Twilio Quest. Twilio Quest is a learning platform for people who want to learn how to code, right? So if you want to learn PHP, Python, and JavaScript through a gamified experience with some retro-like graphics, 8-bit music, and a big, big, huge dose of nostalgia. That's your product. We had a really interesting conversation talking about the product, talking about the idea, talking about the science of learning. Although we didn't get that much into detail about that, we'll have to record a second part of the episode. We talked about learning how to code. We talked about how to market this. We talked about open source philosophy and how to gather community around these kind of projects and much, much more. So if you're interested in how to learn how to code or how to teach other people how to uh, how to code and about these kind of products, this is definitely an interesting episode for you. So I hope you enjoy it. Kiara, Kevin, how are you? Welcome to Life on Mars. We're doing all right. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Very excited to chat today. We got a distributed chat here. Chiara is in Madrid. Kevin, you mentioned you are uh, six, seven hours away. Where are you based now? Uh, I'm in uh, Minneapolis today. I uh, live just outside the Twin Cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul in uh, Minnesota here in the States. And top of the morning to you, because it seems like you got a very, very sunny day. So it's good to see some optimism as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, definitely things are looking up. So, yeah. Great. We're here to discuss Twilio Quest because um, we have been we've been running the the podcast uh, Life on Mars um, for over a year now. We've been talking about you know hosting. We've been talking about Ruby on Rails, uh, bootstrap companies, remote working, SaaS, scalability, whatnot. But how about learning how to code? This is a very that very specific topic. We haven't we haven't talked about that, and it's, it seems like in Twilio. Because um, you guys are working at, at Twilio, there's been this initiative that started like six years ago, if I'm not mistaken, by you, Kevin. So you might want to give us a little bit of context as to how this did start and what is Twilio Quest exactly. Yeah, sure. So uh, Twilio Quest is an educational video game that we've built uh, that sort of uh, targets early in career uh, software developers. Uh, it, it's it uh, we look to teach like foundational programming skills. Um, but we also have content in Twilio Quest that uh, teaches Twilio APIs specifically. Uh, the sort of origin of this uh, program was uh, we used Twilio Quest many years ago for like just live first party training for the Twilio API, like that we would uh, deliver for our customers. Um, but over time, uh, we found that it was uh, a generally useful. Um, learning platform with some unique advantages. Um, so we started to kind of build it out uh, for a for a general audience as well, um, which I'm sure we'll uh, dig into. But um, but yeah, uh, Twilio Quest uh, today is uh, largely for folks that are learning how to code. Um, but it also kind of began its life as uh, Twilio's like first party training program as well. But it's interesting because I thought you see you mentioned that you're targeting developers early in their careers. And I thought that would be for people who don't know how to program. So how different is that in terms of demographics? Yeah, I mean, uh, so the the 
people that we find um, benefiting the most from Tulio Quest are like university students, boot camp students, uh, folks that are kind of in that stage of their career, um, and also like career switchers, like folks that are uh, acquiring programming as a new skill from another uh, from another discipline. Uh, so the content in Tulio Quest right now uh, is a, is a great way to like reinforce the kind of lessons that you might learn in a computer science course, or if you're doing any kind of self-paced content, uh, because you know, you're know you installing the tools on your computer, you're executing the code on your computer, uh, the, uh, the, the sort of you, you're sort of applying what you learn about the syntax, like maybe in some kind of browser-based um, environment, um, and actually using it to write code and execute code on your computer. So um, that, that's generally like the sweet spot of user that we've, that we've found. So learning to code for the first time is definitely something you can do in Twilio Quest. Um, but what we see in the audience is most often uh, that type of user that uh, has that knows that they're on the road to becoming a programmer, um, but is using Twilio Quest to reinforce those skills. Which is very interesting because it seems like a long-term investment, <clears throat> right? You're teaching people how to code because essentially like one of the end goals, of course, will be like use the Twilio APIs, right? So but before going into the technicalities as to like the programming languages that are being taught there, the, con the actual content of the of the uh, of the program, um, let's introduce Kiara a little bit because we uh, know each other since your times at Sangreet, and you've always been a very community oriented person, right? So you've been uh, working in the startups department, also in in Twilio before moving over to Twilio Quest. So why did you join this specific program or this specific application, and what attracted you from it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, as you say, I spent a lot of time. Uh, in the startup community kind of across EMEA. Um, and when we when SendGrid was acquired by Twilio, uh, the startups team fell under what's known as the developer network at Twilio. Um, so I continued on the startup team there for about a year. And then I had the opportunity to move over from startup community to developer community, which was something that was new to me. Um, and I don't think that there's a cooler way to do it than through a video game. So <laughs> that's how I ended up doing this. I thought that you would be just like, uh, you know, too, you were too busy traveling all over the place and you were fed up with traveling. You said like, you know what? I want to go back to, to playing computers, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> no, which makes a question like, I, I don't know if, you, if you're if you a coder or not, uh, Kiara. I assume, Kevin, because you came up with the idea, you might have more like a technical grasp on this. But like, how did you two learn how to code if, you, if you're, because I, I don't know that part of your background. Yeah, totally. Uh, of, of going. <laughs> yeah, I was going to see who was going to uh, bite first, but uh, the so I I started uh, programming kind of in uh, in high school a little bit. Like there were some uh, programming courses, and I learned just enough to like uh, program a version of a game called Red Rover. I don't know if this exists internationally or not, but line, lines of children like hold hands, and then you send someone across to like try to run through the hands and like break through a line of uh, kids. Uh, it may be a specifically American invention, um, but I figured out how to like write a video game version of this like schoolyard uh, game. Um, and yeah, and just have kind of been uh, bumming around programming uh, since then. All right. Kiara, what's your yeah, So I, yeah, I don't have a background in software engineering at all. Um, however, throughout my career, I've worked with technical teams in different environments. Um, and so it was always something that I wanted to do. And I've never had like a, 
I've started several courses and never really built anything with what I had learned. And so the mission of Twilio Quest really resonates with me personally um, as someone who has wanted to learn to code uh, for a long time. And um, yeah, being able to do that in a fun way, I think is, is pretty cool. Because in terms of community, right, it seems that you, not only you're investing in the community, which is something um, that that's a really nice of, of you as a company. Of course, there's some some kind of thing that you want to get out of it, which is more users, more knowledge of your platform, more users of the of the Twilio products. By the way, so <clears throat> but at least you're investing in teaching the new generations of developers. And precisely also, maybe you can also eat your own duck's food for people inside the company who don't know how to code and would like to build things, which I don't know if it's your case, Yara, that perhaps you wanted to learn. So maybe with the new, this wave of no code slash low code slash small code, whatever you want to call it, is this something that can also profit from initiatives uh, like uh, Twilio Quest, for instance? Yeah, I mean, we've seen folks internally use Twilio Quest to upskill um, absolutely across different teams. Great. And and as we look at like the roadmap for content within Twilio Quest, there's an opportunity to bridge that gap for rather than being like language specific, actually looking at how to uh, encourage technical fluency, I would say. And also because in terms of community, this is something that we we recorded a couple of episodes ago. We talked about community with um, developer advocates, right? So the role of developer uh, developer relations, developer advocates, there are millions of names sure. for, for that sort of uh, role and how they play into the ecosystem. And most of the time, it's kind of like a selling, but not selling. So in the sense that, you know, they go out there for a conference, they provide value. Of course, it's a pragmatic way of saying it, which is like, yeah, of course, you wouldn't go, you wouldn't be going to the conferences if you were not getting out of it. But sometimes it's so long-term, that it's perceived as something purely altruistic, right? Um, which is something I like about this about this kind of project because it seems that you know your investment is in people who will most likely not be using your APIs, your products in a couple of years because it takes a lot of time to learn programming. Right. How have you have you have you seen any kind of metrics as to how long does it take people from starting your program to start using some of your products? Um. It's uh, it's been tricky since we we've only been we've only been explicitly targeting early and career developers for the last like couple of years. Um, the mm -hmm. Twilio Quest, as recently as like 2018, 2019, was still largely targeted at like the Twilio developer community to help them uh, just adopt the product um, more quickly. Um, generally speaking, like we saw the people who used Twilio Quest achieved. Uh, like product activation metrics faster than other cohorts of the of the population. Like we could see, you know, this set of accounts, you know, used more Twilio and and sort of got to the finish line faster of like successfully making API requests. Um, so we we knew that it was uh, beneficial from from that standpoint. Uh, I think like for when we talk about like measuring the long tail, um, we do expect to see that. And we've started to try to put some measurement in place to, to see how that will grow over time. But we also have like uh, exemplars that have been doing this for longer than we have. Uh, like we, you know, have uh, a great partnership with GitHub who has a really, uh, you know, long running and successful education program. Um, and they have, you know, I, uh, theirs is, their story is not mine to tell, but they have, uh, have have achieved like really great results by investing in student communities and seeing how they grow into into GitHub uh, users over time. Um, and there have been a few examples like that that we're we're tracking as well. 
actually, how do you, well, I mean, um, in your, in your new role, Kiara, so uh, you might be looking for some kind of partnerships as well, which is also one, one of the things you have specialized in over the years. What's the face of the people like when you approach them with a gamified, I don't know if that's the right word to use, like a gamified um, learning program such as Twilio Quest? Are they like, wow, this is extremely nerdy? Like, do people, do even like more formal companies understand it? If you know what I mean? I'd say that generally the response has been really positive because it is a really different and exciting format that people aren't used to. And so um, typically the conversation, is, yeah, I mean, runs smoothly in that they have the opportunity to offer their community something different. Um, but it's definitely been a learning curve to approach this type of partnership versus the partnerships that I was used to doing in the startup world. Yeah, because like it seems like the other partnerships you were doing precisely before at Sangrid um, were more like, yeah, I'm going to give you credit, something more actionable in the short term for startups in in dire need of what you actually were offering. So it was much more actionable about what, I don't know, maybe more, more I wouldn't call it short-sighted, but excuse me, I'm not native in English. So it was kind of like more like I, I have immediate uh, rewards, right? Whereas here's like you're giving something to the community that will pay off in a few years' time, which is something completely different. So I think maybe you got to think bigger, if you know what I mean, talk, talk, talking to GitHub and talking to, I don't know what other big players, but not to the direct startups, right? So where do you find, like, who's the, your ideal partner in that sense? Yeah, so, I mean, GitHub is one that with their, there's there's alignment in our education programs, and so it's been a great partnership for that reason. Um, but then a lot of the partnerships that we're working on currently is actually with, uh, with boot camps um, and figuring out at what stage of the learning journey a boot camp student could benefit from Twilio Quest, whether that is through a Twilio Quest event, um, through uh, using Twilio Quest as part of the application process for being approved to join a bootcamp or even as like a classroom enrichment activity. So, um, yeah, I mean, our partnerships definitely vary. Another example is Code Newbies, who have mm -hmm. a community of um, early in career or folks that are learning to code for the first time. Um, and I think that's what's interesting about Twilio Quest is that we have an opportunity to partner with a real wide range of organizations and educators as well. All right, Kevin, take me back to when this started. Like, how did you actually come with a very, very, like an MVP, if if there was ever an MVP for this, and how did you position it or sold, how did you sell it internally in Twilio as to like, hey, I've got this idea. I'm going to Yeah, it. yeah. That's a that's a good question. So the uh, the place where it actually started was uh, we had we were getting ready for uh, Twilio's like third developer conference, which was back in 2013, and um, I I was a developer evangelist at that time. Um, that's what I was hired at Twilio to do, um, and uh, folks had heard that I had built like a developer training and developer certification program um, at my last job. Um, and we're like, all right, Kevin, you are now in charge of the first day of the conference. And it needs to be a training day where you teach everyone how to do uh, Twilio. Uh, and because I had been doing developer training for kind of a long time, um, I had sort of done it in the way in which you've likely experienced developer training, which is you have a presentation, then there's some hands-on stuff, then you have a presentation, then there's some hands-on stuff. And uh, the problem with that was that I, it felt like I was always missing some portion of the audience. I was either going too fast 
fast for some people or I was going too slow for other people. And I never really hit the right um, mixture for a diverse group of learners. So I started thinking through like, all right, what, what would it look like for people to advance at their own pace during training? And uh, being a huge dork uh, and being into video games and role-playing games in particular, um, the metaphor of leveling up at different paces uh, was the one that kind of stuck out for me. And if you could power level and get through a bunch of content very quickly, that's great. We want to we want to support that experience. But if you only sort of get through a few pieces of content, that's also great. Like you're you're learning at the pace which is appropriate for you. Um, so over the course of like a couple of weeks, I hacked together the first version of uh, Twilio Quest, which was uh, in the browser. Um, and it was essentially just like a video game flavored like tutorial website. And like we, the Twilio team would go around and manually like see if people had completed code challenges that attendees would use, like that they would kind of do at their own pace. We'd validate that they uh, completed these tutorials um, and then award them points. And then they'd have little, you know, items that would appear on their avatars and, and things like that. Uh, and, th and that was kind of where, where we started, where we would use Twilio Quest for our live training events that we would do for a number of years. Um, and we saw it like sort of be irrationally motivating. Like, uh, like we had audiences who wouldn't let us leave until they completed the last level and like got the last like special hat for their uh, avatar. Um, so like the amount of engagement that we generated through this uh, program was surprising enough to us where we were like, oh, hey, well, what would happen if we made this uh, self-service and like let anybody do it outside of a live training event? Um, so we made some investments to, to do that. Um, and then this most recent iteration of Twilio Quest, we kind of went from being like a video game themed trailhead to like a full on downloadable PC game uh, because we wanted to kind of double down on the video game mechanics that made the content um, uh, as, as appealing as it was um, on the web. Uh, and that uh, is kind of where we uh, how we got to the place where we are today. Um, so it wasn't necessarily like I came in with like a really great pitch for like the like creating a PC game um, and and kind of got it funded that way. Um, we kind of had some early iterations and some early success with this as a learning platform. Um, and then we tried a few more experiments. Like the first experiment was like, well, what'll happen if we go to the desktop? Uh, and, and make some technical changes. And we saw engagement essentially double over what we had in the browser, like in terms of the amount of content that people consumed. And then we tested, well, what would happen if we had non-Twilio content in Twilio Quest? And we saw that you know, our JavaScript mission became the most popular piece of content that we had in Twilio Quest. Um, yeah, and now like our experiments are more around like, well, what, how can we serve like educators? Like how can we make this part of a curriculum? Um, and that's a big theme of our you know, upcoming 3.2 release uh, at Signal this uh, this fall. So, yeah. So I, I don't know. Maybe that that is helpful uh, context to have. But if you have any questions, we'd love to. I, I, I would have. I would yeah. I would have thought like I don't know. Maybe the way I would have approached something like that, being as bootstrapping as I am, maybe that I would have done something like terminal only. But on the other hand, that's also like pretty pretty technical for non developers, perhaps. So. Um, sure. But one of the things I really like, and I want to I want to touch down on this, is like the choice of languages, right? Because I mean, I've I've taught people how to program in the past, and one of the things that people struggle the most to understand is that in order to be a good programmer, I believe that's a personal opinion, you need to know at least two different languages, right? And that's one of the things I struggle with 
when I, you know, when I talk to people running boot camps and they're like, yeah, we only do JavaScript. We only do Ruby. We only do Python, whatever's like, well, then you're teaching them to, the, to be JavaScript developers, but not developers, right? I don't know. Maybe that's too much of a strong opinion, but with, with which languages did you start? Because right now we've got PHP, JavaScript, and Python. And why did you come with this um, choice of technologies? Yeah, um, I, I think part of it was uh, like we we wanted to try to teach like foundational skills. We kind of knew that we wanted to target an early in career audience. Um, so like the first steps in a couple of uh, popular programming languages that are often used by like boot camps and other educational institutions uh, was the reason specifically why we chose JavaScript and Python. Like we knew that it was likely to cover a large mm -hmm. swath of people that were learning to code uh, for the for the first time. Um, and uh, PHP, we just we happen to have a, a team member who is into PHP, and uh, she uh, wrote a couple of, uh, of objectives within Julia Quest uh, to teach her beloved uh, programming language. So it was kind of a, uh, a bonus we got by virtue of um, members members of our team. But uh, JavaScript and Python specifically, we chose because we knew that it was popular in bootcamp audiences. Um, but like it is like to your point, uh, I think it's it's useful to to cross train. I think like once you do know two languages, uh, then you start to understand concepts. Like you see like, oh, this is a list and like list iteration, how you interact with like an ordered set of items become like sort of becomes clearer as a concept because it's not just a JavaScript API that does a JavaScript thing. Like you understand what is like the, the concept. So um, we definitely have seen that use case for Twilio Quest 2 where you know, a C-sharp programmer that's been doing C-sharp for decades, uh, you know, this is a one specific example of somebody who picked up Twilio Quest to, like, learn Python and learn JavaScript and explicitly for the for the purposes of cross-training and uh, picking up new skills that way. And play devil's advocate here, but maybe, like, you're getting pressure from the marketing side, like, hey, why don't we have, like, Java um, content? Why don't we have Ruby content? Why don't we have, like... I don't know, other languages. So I don't know, Kiara, if I'm on your side here. Like, are you pressuring Kevin to add more, more programming languages or frameworks over there? Um, and how does that help you or constrain you in order to create more partnerships with companies who might be requiring a language that you don't have? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think generally with the languages we have, we can serve at least the large majority of the of the boot camps and educators we're speaking to. Um, I think where it gets interesting is kind of what I touched on earlier, where it's more about like tech fluency and like workplace readiness skills. So like, yes, learning how to program in a specific language is great, but how will that person then go on to use that in the workplace? And what other skills should we be teaching them in order to be successful on day one? Um, and that's where I hope to see more content in, in Toyo Quest in the future. Um, yeah. Is there anything you can disclose about the upcoming uh, version? I don't know, this will come sure. out in the month, more or less. So it might, might be that it's already out. So there's something that, what can we expect from that? Can we expect Ruby <laughs> or... Very, um, you know, very bullish on Ruby here. So that's why it begs the question. Yeah, um, it is. Un you are unlikely to see Ruby, sadly. I actually do uh, love uh, Ruby as well. Like I, I made a small SaaS business that was based on uh, a Rails application with Adobe Flex on the front end. Uh, about, all right, uh, all right. Many, many, many years ago. So digging way back. Um, but the uh, the work that Kiara has done um with like working with educators and kind of learning where Twilio Quest fits in their um, 
in their mission has kind of informed like the next iteration of content that we're getting ready, uh, which will be like in October. So it'll be a little bit longer out there before like we have our big um, formal release. But um, what what you'll see is uh, like a new a new set of content uh, that is uh, targeted towards specifically equipping developers with like. Uh, knowledge of what an API is, how APIs work, and like how they integrate into a software application. Um, largely because like we we found like um, the language content was great and it, and it sort of reinforced skills that were uh, being taught um, in institutions already, um, but it's not necessarily novel. But what would be useful and would be novel is teaching the concepts behind APIs. Um, so we're creating a, the Arcane Academy of API Arts, uh, which is a Hogwarts style school where you will learn the magic of uh, APIs. Um, this will be a new explorable area in the game. Uh, we also have a uh, brand new like visual look for the game that's uh, gonna be rolling out. Um, we commissioned, uh, you know, original artwork with a uh, from a really great uh, pixel artist. Um, and we also have, uh, uh, perhaps most excitingly, at least for me, is we'll be open sourcing our content um, and Amazing. documenting our Twilio Quest authoring tools. Um, so anybody can like create new content, new levels, um, and extend Twilio Quest in any way they uh, see fit uh, with new uh, and teach whatever they would like uh, using our platform. That that sounds terrific. Actually, I don't know if that, that's got something to do. Pr probably not because it was announced a couple of days ago. Only I saw, like, I think we all woke up to this incredible news that uh, the Nintendo Switch platform, they will be, you know, they will be releasing mm -hmm. this, this. I don't know if it's a game or if it's the software to, to teach people how to program um, yeah. games inside a game. And I was like, wow, this is groundbreaking. And I didn't see this move coming anytime soon, but it's like, I don't know. Like, it's, of course, your your story is completely unrelated here, but does that help you in terms of spreading the message that this is something that needs to be more widespread as general knowledge in the population? Yeah, I, I think so. Like, yeah, I, I, we, we saw the news uh, a couple of days ago as well. Uh, and I, I think what's going to be neat about it and what, and what is generally good about the, this class of tools uh, is the is creating the mindset of programming of like understanding what loops are and like how to set up like instruction steps uh like the like because essentially it's going to be like a it looks like it's going to be a scratch like environment that you control with like thumbsticks so i'm actually extremely interested from like a user experience standpoint to see like how they pull off visual programming uh using like a, a gamepad um so i mean i i think it it does speak to the larger theme of uh, technical literacy and understanding how to write code. Like even if it is like low code, no code, uh, those types of things. Uh, Kiara is far too modest about her own uh, skills with automation. Like she's she's very good at uh, crafting like automated flows with uh, tools that would be considered like no code or low code. Um, and I think like those are the kinds of skills you're going to need to be successful um, as a as a professional. Yeah, in fact, I wanted to ask Kiara. So, how is the ecosystem? How are startup ecosystem or tech ecosystems welcome in welcoming initiatives like this? Because for me, like I know this is an unsolicited opinion, but that's why we are on a highly opinionated podcast. Um, it is irresponsible of every city to just rely on the developer boot camps to create the new waves of of developers, right? Of course, there's open source people can learn with open source but it's not very popular unfortunately of course there's universities but they also have got their own concerns and issues 
But like, uh, how are how are the main actors in every tech ecosystem welcoming initiatives like this? Particularly taking into account that it comes from a corporate, even if it's Twilio, and it's got a great reputation among developers, still a corporate, right? So, yeah, um, that's a tricky question. <laughs> yeah, I don't know these questions here. Huh? <laughs> yeah, but, um, I think. As I, I think I said, as I said before, like generally the approach has been welcomed and um, we're seeing a lot of interest and kind of just like inbound discovery, right? People are looking for different ways to learn. And so um, a lot of the, the users we have within Twilio Quest are folks that have found us searching for different ways of learning to code, whether that is searching for like learn to code through a video game or something more generic that brought them to, to Twilio Quest. Um, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but I, I think like overall the, the response has, we haven't seen any pushback, I would say. No, actually, because I was realizing that maybe it was not a very intelligent question because as opposed to maybe, you know, where with former initiatives where you had to go to like a market here, like startups in Barcelona, startups in Madrid, startups in London, startups in Berlin, whatever. This is much more global because yeah. the tech ecosystem, uh, open source is not based locally. I mean, of course, it's local meetups, but usually, you know, we're talking about Ruby and Rails. It's like a group of international people working remotely and this kind of communities, right? So, but yeah, but it's more my, genuinely... Uh, questioning about whether there was some sort of resistance from any kind of players. I don't know. Maybe what's your relationship with the boot camps, actually? So, yeah, is that something I, they, they can be using or they see us as a competitor? So that's in, that's that's a very interesting question. I, I don't think they see us as a competitor, but I also don't think we've quite figured out exactly where we fit in the boot camp landscape. Um, also, because through all the conversations I've had over the last year, I've I've learned that there are so many different approaches to boot camps, right? Different durations to the programs, different levels of expertise required before the program even kicks off. And so, a lot of the conversations we've been having with them is around like. Initially, the response is very positive, but where do we fit? Is that a just something that students can do for fun alongside what they're learning? Or actually, is there an opportunity for us to more specifically be built into the curriculum that's being taught in the classroom? Um, but yeah, our community is global, as you say. And so it, it has been really fascinating to learn about like how boot camps how middle school teachers how high school teachers how university lecturers are approaching their curriculum differently in different countries yeah and, uh, I mean, if, if, oh sorry i think kevin you want to say something yeah i was just gonna <clears throat> pile into another learning that uh kiara has unearthed um, as we've been talking with educators is that there's actually like the relationship they want to have with industry with like businesses like uh, twilio is to understand like, well, what are the skills that you would like to equip students with? Like what's gonna make them more employable? What's gonna make them more successful once they graduate from these programs? Um, and I think that that's, that's like what we're trying to equip them with uh, through Twilio Quest is uh, we, we feel like at, le at least like one little sliver of what is gonna help uh, students and in their post-education lives is understanding APIs and how they sort of supercharge what you're able to do. Like understanding that you don't have to build a payment system. Stripe exists for that. Like you don't have to build a 
Um, you don't have to build like an SMS integration. Twilio uh, exists for that. Like the like understanding what these tools are and how they plug in and like principles of REST and and machine to machine communication. Um, like though that's like what we've heard more from educational institutions versus like, hey, we don't want to work with you know greedy corporations. It's more of like, a, well, what what do our students need to be successful out in the marketplace? What what stage is Twilio Quest at right now? I mean, like in beats rationally speaking, B two B software, it's you trying to push out your communications and integrating with people, but it comes a point in which this is completely reversed and people ask to be integrated with you, right? You become the platform, and then Stripe comes and says, like, whoa, it seems like you got an interesting number of people here. Potentially, they could be my customers. Can I build something that integrates with you? Right now, where does Twilio Quest stand? Um, I I think like we what we hope to have happen is like we we've invested a tremendous amount in this platform. We've had you know, ten, we have tens of thousands of players uh, coming through the platform uh, every year. Uh, we've we figured a few things out um, by making a lot of mistakes about like how to build a platform like this one. Um, so like with the authoring tools, like we've been working with a couple of like peer developer relations organizations to you know try some experiments uh, with building content for Twilio Quest. So I think I think we'll see if uh, you know we. We want to allow like other organizations that serve developers to use this platform too, uh, and I think like their early success and, and like you know engaging with this audience will kind of dictate where where Twilio Quest uh, falls. But uh, but generally like our focus is just on the early career community that we want to serve with uh, like our first party content, and we hope some of those other things start to materialize. But um, it's not something we're super focused on. No, but also, you know, um, in terms of at least open source, the open source community is very grateful. So they like to pay back to, to the communities they learn from. But that comes after a few years, right? So maybe if you, I think you mentioned that you launched like three years ago. So maybe still too early for these new generations to sort of acknowledge that they are already like, oh, I need to go and the Twilio Quest and pay back and create my own tutorials. Maybe that's, maybe it's too early for that to see some results. But I wanted to nerd out on something very specifically right here. Um, and that question is for you, Kevin. It's like, you know, you got 8-bit music, retro gaming, uh, game view, this, this two-dimensional agreed like that reminds me of, of games like Ultima Online, RPG-like gameplay, uh, these dial-up modems, and it sounds like that. It, it all kind of like boils down to nostalgia. So who's like the, um, to, to, to what extent did you design all of this? Are you like the, 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 the uber nerd mastermind that designed you know, the gameplay, the icons, the the, the imagery, the music and all of that, or have you used different kinds of theme within Twilio? Um, so uh, I de definitely would be sort of the, the arch nerd, I guess, of the, of the <laughs> like that sort of have uh, composed various pieces. But like um, the music, for instance, like we actually, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Sam Agnew, um, who's a developer evangelist for Twilio, um, is pretty into uh, like chiptune uh, you know, really music good. creator creator communities. <laughs> um, so we like approached you know a half dozen uh, artists whose like work that we liked, and uh, just kind of commissioned uh, some tracks from like uh, 
from uh, I, I would drop a lot of names that won't mean anything if you're not way into cheap chip tunes, but uh, we, we found a lot of really great artists to collaborate on the soundtrack. Um, so I'm definitely not capable of doing those things. Um, a lot of the art in the game, like some of, some of it was created by me. Uh, some of it we, nice. uh, you know, got from, um, you know, basically like buying from itch.io, like every other indie game developer um, out there. Um, but the new version of the game will be almost entirely um, done by uh, Carrie Lake, who is a pixel artist that's worked on a lot of indie projects. Wow. Um, and she's uh, she's fantastic. So she will replace all of my crappy artwork with beautiful, um, nice artwork in the upcoming version. Uh, but a lot, most, a lot of the dialogue um, I, I wrote like in the JavaScript and, and Python uh, missions. Um, the actual instructional content, um, I, I created a decent amount of it, but we have also had like large numbers of contributors inside Twilio that have created content. Um, and then uh, Ryan Kubik, who's my uh, technical partner in crime, um, he's he's really been the engine of creating like everything that makes the game go. He's also created a bunch of content in the JavaScript mission um, and has been and is kind of the beating heart of our engineering efforts uh, these days as I spend uh, more time doing managery things. Uh, but but yeah, it's it's definitely been a uh, team effort, but I have jealously held on to uh, the the director role uh, because I, I, I love this too much to um, not be a little bit engaged in um, each of these pieces of the creation of the, of the project. And related to that, like diving deeper into the nostalgia, because it seems like you doubled down on nostalgia, you went hard on nostalgia, right? I stopped playing video games when they were not pixelated anymore. So I can really understand that. That's why I like the 8-bit music and, and all of these general vibe around the game. But like, is that, did you think that was going to work from the very beginning? Or because some, like some kind of these, some kind of feeling about this going retro that's right now, if not done properly, can be perceived as cheap. But for the most part, it can also be perceived as a meme. But it seems like it's building you a great business here within Twilio, right? So how what part of it or how did you calibrate the expectations between like, wow, I want it to be like really nerdy, but I also want it to work, right? Yeah, totally. Um, I, I think like the, uh, the original... Uh, decision to make it more of like a 8-bit, 16-bit uh, theme came from like working with an audience of professional developers uh, who who might actually remember, um, you know, playing 8- or 16-bit uh, games um, mm -hmm. in, in their own childhood. So we did trade heavily on nostalgia there. Um, I think like in the next iteration of the art and the upcoming iterations of the game, uh, we want to stay within that realm because we find like that art style charming. But hopefully it'll be more like akin to a Stardew Valley than, you know, a Final Fantasy VI. Like the uh, like the charm of pixel art uh, I, I want to retain, but I, th I think like the style we want to evolve because, um, yeah, we are getting to the point where we're serving a generation of kids who like the most low-tech video game system they've ever encountered is like a Nintendo 64. And they're like, oh yeah. man, that's so retro um, when like, You know, when I was in college, like that was the, you know, the thing that we played. Um, so like we, we definitely need to make sure that we're connecting with the, with the audience um, and have the same cultural context. Yeah, because my second part of the question, and that was more directed to, to Chiara perhaps, is like, but maybe by creating this sort of like retro, like for kids who grew up in like the late 80s, early 90s, that's all right. We are already like directors of, of areas, directors of companies, but not precisely learning how to code. The kids who are learning how to code 
they were born in, you know, in the year 2000. So that's literally, they haven't seen anything that is not 3D. So maybe they can be put off by these kind of graphics. I don't know. What's the demographics of your platform more or less right now on average, Kiera? Yeah, um, I the majority of our audience sits between like ages 18 and 35 in terms of... All right, uh, I'm still there. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and it's definitely something that we've talked about, as Kevin said. I think like there's ways in which we could stay within the same style, um, but create experiences that allow folks to engage with the game in different ways. So like, I'm a huge Pokemon fan. I grew up playing a lot of Pokemon. We should talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so like being able, and also like one of my favorite parts of Pokemon is like being in the new version of the game is to be able to like dress up my, the the person that I uh, play as. Your avatar, Um, yeah. Yeah, my avatar, exactly. Um, but also like the the ability to battle, right? And so when I was playing last year, um, we talked about like how could we incorporate different experiences that resonate with, you know, players who are looking for different things within Toyo Quest, um, still within the Definitely. same art style. What else did you borrow from Pokemon? Did you play Sword or Shield last year? <laughs> I played Shield. <laughs> All right. I play Sword. <laughs> so we should definitely link up on Switch and, yes. and exchange things there. I'm a huge Pokemon nerd as well. Everybody knows it in the company. I mean, you need to only go to my Twitter profile and you will see a reference to it. But uh, what else? So what other inspirations, not only in terms of video games, question for both of you, in terms of video games, but also in terms of educational content, because we mentioned prior to this conversation that, you know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of programming tutorials out there that are also like sort of gamified, kind of like, there's that one, this Rails for Zombies, or a similar, very similar name, like I did, like eight years ago, something like that. Um, there's a bunch of others like that. Where, where did you draw, uh, draw the inspiration from um, to create this sort of tutorial-like uh, platform? Yeah, I mean, I I think like we uh, had um, we in, because we Toyota Quest kind of came from a place of like we were scratching our own itch. We were doing first party training in a way that made sense for our uh, developer community. We didn't kind of start off in a place where like we are going to create an educational product and bring it to market. Um, we just kind of discovered like oh this model um, seems to be working. Um, the one kind of inflection point where we did have to make a choice about like are we going to follow what other uh, platforms are doing or are we going to do something different is when we decided to make the decision to go to the desktop instead of being like a browser-based application. um, We we wanted the ability to be able to create content that could teach anything um, without and allow uh, the developer to write code for any environment. Uh, And we were thinking through like, well, if we wanted to be able to do that in the cloud, like we would need to create sort of a secure containerized environment where we could run your Rust code or whatever. Um, or or if we went to the desktop, we could use the tools that were already installed on your computer and also, you know, allow you to uh, configure your own lo- local development environment and sort of uh, equip yourself for success that way. Um, so that that's probably like where we zagged the most from like sort of conventional wisdom is, you know, we wanted to be able to teach any kind of technology. We wanted to, you to be able to, uh, or we wanted to be able to provide you feedback on whether or not you've configured your development environment successfully. Um, so going to the desktop allowed us to do that. So we could interface and see like, oh, you have Git installed. Uh, great. Or like, yes, you have checked out this Git repository in this folder, and we can validate that by you know writing code that executes on your on your desktop. 
Um, so we definitely like drew a lot of inspiration from like uh, the code academies and, and Udemy and like there is, there's been sort of an explosion of really great and all those tools remain awesome. Like uh, code combat and those types of things. Um, we, I drew a lot of inspiration from those, but like our focus was on trying to like equip people with skills to be a developer, um, you know, and configure their local development environment and those uh, types of things as well. Um, circling back, it's a, there was another thing that I wanted to do. I totally forgot to ask back when we were talking about the demographics of people using these, right? One of the main crutches I've got against boot camps is that they are not very diverse in the sense that they are forcing you to go to places and socialize and do a lot of like teamwork. And definitely that's not for everybody, right? Uh, there are people who just don't want to socialize. There are people who learn also faster and they are not good at teamwork and that's perfectly fine. There are super good developers who are not good at teamwork or they, they can just learn from the comfort of their, their, their homes or they cannot afford moving to other cities, right? Therefore, there's also like a part of like social class background and, and whatever. And um, one of the things that I, that I think like Twilio Quest might democratize a little bit more and, and broaden the diversity and this kind of uh, learning, the programming learning, is that you might be able to also service this kind of people. Have you also noticed that you've got also different kinds of people from more diverse backgrounds, from like third world countries or underdeveloped countries? I don't know what's the right word for that. Or more like extremely introvert people. Yeah, I mean, I think that's tricky to know specifically, but I can say that we're very intentional about serving uh, diverse communities. And so uh, a lot of the work one of our colleagues, Margaret, does, um, she runs a, a weekly stream on Twitch. Um, and each month we select an organization that we partner with as around a specific topic. Um, and she brings folks together to talk about really important topics, as well as playing Twilio Quest and encouraging folks from all over to... And from all backgrounds to to engage. So I'd say the fact that you can play Twilio Quest anywhere makes it so that you don't need to be in a physical place to learn. Um, and, and then we do also have the option for folks that do want to socialize with Twilio Quest uh, in hosting their own Twilio Quest events. They're called operations. They can play either in person at a physical meetup or virtually uh, from wherever they are. Um, but yeah. Kevin, do you have anything to add on that? Yeah, I mean, I I think like the having a diversity of um, options for how you learn is generally uh, a good thing, and we've seen uh, just anecdotal anecdotes from the community. Like we have a, a Discord server where uh, Twilio Quest players uh, will hang out and chat from time to time. Um, and I was chatting with somebody uh, a few months ago who. Um, had struggled to get into programming a few times. Like they had gone through like online tutorials, uh, but they couldn't figure out how to like transfer their skills from like this browser-based thing that they did to like understanding how to actually write code on their computer. Um, so the fact that Twilio Quest like took them through like installing Python on their computer, creating a .py file like on in the terminal and executing it with the Python command. Like those were like the muscles that they needed to develop to be able to be like, oh, this is how like I actually write code. Like I understand how the syntax works in the browser, but like the, the actual motions of being a developer are really 
what I needed. And we, we had another woman who was like a Salesforce administrator who had wanted to learn how to code forever. Uh, and she was in a similar situation where it's like, well, yeah, I see the syntax on the in the browser and I can complete the exercise, but I don't feel like I'm any closer to like writing and shipping my own code. Um, so I think like just providing different types of experiences that fit into different parts of the learning journey um, is is part of the strength of the platform as well. And it's a pity that we'll not have time to talk about all of this because we didn't even go into the science of learning, um, <laughs> like the methodologies of how to teach the different, like, you know, different styles and teaching programming and, 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 and how to structure the content, uh, how to create evergreen, evergreen content or how to keep it updated. I think that entirely deserves another episode. So I, I don't know. Uh, I will contact you in a few months or maybe for version two, we'll have you. Um, to drill down specifically on this part because I'm really passionate about that, but I really I didn't want to just go over it. But uh, just one question on that on that topic. We can go as deep as you want in the next in the next episode. But but who is in charge of designing the content and the teaching style and the methodology? Because educational like edtech is pretty complex, and people think it's about a you know just creating some courses and structuring them here and there and have some sort of methodology, but it's way more complex than that because there's the reward system. There's a, you know, the, the like, how you call it, like a classification or like uh, leaderboards and it might be like really, 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 really broad to speak about it. But how, what kind of team have you assembled to deal with this? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, early on, it like uh, there was there was a time when Team Twilio Quest was like just me, right? And yeah. like, <laughs> I kind of had to make some choices about like how content was going to go um, and those types of things. I think like now as the team has grown, um, there's uh, a few of us with different specialized skill sets. And how many people um, are you? Right uh, now? There, there's six people on the team right now. Nice. Uh, And uh, one of our most recent additions to the team is a really great instructional content designer uh, who has uh, worked at like a treehouse and like done some other like educational uh, video content um, in the past. Great. And um, I think like the, the level of like rigor that we want to bring to the content is starting to come into place where we have like a sense of, all right, these are, this is what a good outline looks like. Uh, because I think like we've sort of discovered organically what has worked and has not worked in creating our own content. Um, and that's definitely been the hardest part of the process is like figuring out what to actually build and like what is actually useful. Um, so I think like we are now at the point where we have, have figured out like, oh, this is how people play Twilio Quest. This is how they want to consume content in this medium. And I think we also now understand like, oh, this is what you know, education needs from us or what educators need from us. Um, and I think we also have a better sense of like how to structure that content. Um, so I think like the upcoming release is going to be a major step forward in that sense of like fitting within education more appropriately and us knowing how to structure the content. Because like, I think that's the trickiest part is coming up with the learning objectives uh, and making sure that they're appropriate for the audience that you're um, bring them to. It is definitely a big topic uh, to dive into, but I think with really the team that we have in place now, we have a better chance of doing it than we did uh, when it was just me or just me and Ryan. So, And it seems you're still learning from the people using it from your users and that as the team is evolving, as the product is evolving, you'll be, you know, we'll be accumulating more knowledge. So for the next time, we'll have a clearer 
um, answer on this. Uh, we need to wrap this up, folks. Uh, we're running out of time. It's been fantastic because, like, I didn't take a look at the time. It's like, well, God damn it. Like, we're still, we're already at one hour. Um, but we usually wrap it up with our signature question, which is a very, very difficult question. And that is, we want you, both of you, to share what's the biggest tech or product fuck up you've done so far and what have you Ooh. learned from it. And if you, if you can, for bonus points, can you kind of quantify it in money? Wow. Let's see. Maybe tech, product, you know, design, difficult design decision, but related to technology. Um, so I don't have like a great, like I shipped a bug to production story. Um, I do have like a, <clears throat> so I was a developer evangelist when I, uh, I've been a developer evangelist for many years and yeah. I did a, I was doing a demo at an IBM uh, conference, which at that point was like the biggest audience I'd ever been in front of. It was like 2000 people in like a giant convention center in Las Vegas. And I was doing like sort of the canonical Twilio demo where um, you need to like send a, you you make a phone call and then like all the phones in the in the audience uh, ring, uh, but I had to do it like on a demo computer that was not my computer um, with a Ruby environment. Like I usually program JavaScript, um, so I know enough Ruby to be able to to do it, uh, yeah. but. Uh, but like they had configured IRB to like swallow all the error messages. So I didn't like see the errors during the demo. So it was just like a massive demo fail where like I was supposed to make phones ring and I didn't. And there were 2000 people looking at me like I was an idiot. Uh, and that, that was, uh, that's definitely one that uh, sticks out to me as like, you know, a, a major uh, failure of my uh, technical demoing abilities. So everybody was like holding the phones, like, why? It's not a Yeah, they're just like waiting for it. Like it's not ringing. And again, because like the error messages were being swallowed on this demo computer, I had no idea that anything was going wrong. It was- uh, it So was you still don't know, to this day, you still don't know what happened. Um, I later figured out it was because like one of the, like I was using a new Twilio account as we typically do. Like we use like a special demo account. Yeah. And uh, we had changed it up such that like you had to, instead of by default being able to send messages to all countries, you yeah. had to individually enable each of the countries to send to. So like one of the first like outbound phone calls I tried to make was to like uh, a foreign uh, uh, outside the U.S. phone number. And then that blew up the entire script. Uh, from uh, permissions so, thing, right? Yes. All right. Kata, we want to hear yours. Yeah, so mine's definitely not as technical. Um, it's probably one that will resonate more with marketing folks in your audience. And it was early on, pre-SendGrid, um, I was working for a startup and I was entrusted with our a monthly newsletter send and had spent so much time reading over and sending myself like 100 tests to make sure that everything was right in this newsletter. And then scheduled the send, I think it was on a Friday, like for the Monday and the Monday comes around, the email goes out and it's like a completely blank email to the entire audience. And I was what like, happened? <laughs> I have, I mean, I was in such a panic that I don't know. I managed to send a sorry, you know, the typical, sorry, we didn't yeah. mean to send you that email. <laughs> But it was definitely a lesson early on on like check, check, like keep checking um, and testing your emails before they go out. Working at SendGrid helped with that for sure. I was going to say, I was going to say shameless plug, but like we SendGrid, it, it wouldn't have happened, right? Never. <laughs> so it's safe to assume that, that was a competitor not. that you were using back then. It didn't quite work out that well. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, I think it's been 
fantastic uh time has you know flew by like uh i still have a lot of questions regarding the but i will be looking forward to trying the second version of the game just don't beat the 8 beat and the, the nostalgia just double down on that never, because it's been really, really good okay okay if you can guarantee that it will still be there <laughs> we'll try it and 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 of course eager to learn more about the science of learning and how to teach people programming languages thank you very much for listening bye thank you thanks We are Mars-based, an all-remote consultancy from Barcelona, specializing in web and mobile development. We help all kinds of companies, from startups to big corporations, to conceptualize, design, and develop solutions for their business using technology. And now, how can we help you?